Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by Sarah Agatoni, and let's start with sharing some of the things we're reading and learning from the continent this week. Agatoni? Hi, Kim. So I've been reading um, about President Trump's executive order, um, mm. otherwise referred to as the Muslim ban by some. And very briefly, it's a 90-day ban on citizens of seven countries, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Yemen, Sudan, Libya, and Somalia. And also a 120-day ban on all refugees. From anywhere? From anywhere. So just like reading off this list, you have countries like Somalia that are doubly affected, um, because a great number of refugees come from Somalia. And I read this piece on Quartz by Abdi Latif Dahir, um, and it's titled Trump's Immigrant Ban Adds to the Horrifying Ordeals Somali Refugees Face. And something that I thought was striking um, was the process that people have to go through to be approved as refugees. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people who have themselves never been refugees don't actually know just how much people have to go through to get refugee status. That You know, there's this ignorance about what the vetting process really yeah, is for yeah, refugees. Yeah, there's this whole idea that it's lax, which it really isn't. And I'll read from the article. In order to gain admittance, refugees have to go through a detailed vetting system involving eight federal agencies, six different security databases, five background checks, four biometric security checks, and two interagency security checks, according to the UN's refugee agency. So this is pretty detailed. It was detailed before the ban. So one wonders what will be the effect on countries that depend on America as a haven. You know, I've been I've been talking and thinking a lot about uh, this recent ban and what it means, and it may mean something for some of our listeners, um, if you yourself are not affected by it, maybe uh, people that you care about are. And we just want to share with you, um, there are some resources uh, out there that can um, provide some good information about what people should be doing. A friend and colleague of mine, Meha Sun, at um, the University of Michigan, shared on Twitter earlier this week um, <clears throat> a Google document called Resources for Sudanese Americans and Sudanese in America. And it's a great, you know, frequently asked questions document giving a, an overview of the executive order as mm-hmm. well as um, some advice on, you know, what to do if you're a citizen, if you're a dual national, if um, you're a permanent resident, um, if you have temporary protected status. I think it's a great, um, a great right. overview. Um, one thing I will say, though, is, you know, I've, I've also gotten a lot of questions from folks who are personally not affected by the ban, but still want to do something. And one thing that's also great about this resource list is at the very end, it includes a list of organizations that you could donate money to. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, some that I'm sure many of you have heard of, like the um, ACLU or the Council on American Islamic Relations, but it also includes uh, specific community organizations, for example, the Sudanese American Public Affairs Association. And we'll be sure to have links to those organizations so that if you want to donate um, to some of these organizations that are supporting individuals affected by the order, uh, we want to make sure that you're going to be able to do that. 
Right. And see, that's interesting. You should mention people who are affected and people who might be implicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I read something else by Yomi Kazim, also on Quartz. And mm-hmm. this talks about African citizens specifically who might be affected by the ban, although they're not part of the seven countries. And the article is titled, Trump's Muslim ban has closes that will hurt African visitors beyond banned countries. Mm-hmm. And this is because one of the sections of the executive order emphasizes this idea of reciprocity of procedure. Basically, Mm. what you do to us, we'll do to you. And specifically, there's two examples of Nigeria and Angola. Mm -hmm. So Nigeria charges American citizens about $215 for a visa. Whereas um, Nigerian citizens usually have to pay about 160 mm-hmm. And so there's also fear that the structuring of fees might change. And also for countries uh, such as Angola that have been cited as having a stingy visa policy towards the United States especially, there's also fear that the citizens of these countries could receive fewer visas. And so that's also something to think about. There's countries that are within the vicinity of the ban and there's countries that will be affected indirectly. I think that's important. To, to think about it more broadly, I mean, you know, I'm the daughter of an immigrant, and so mm-hmm. I don't feel very removed from what's happening. And, right. um, you know, I think about, you know, my mom being a green card holder and, and how green card holders were, um, were also um, facing serious obstacles in returning to the country in which they live. And I really felt this when I was watching a Washington Post video by friend of the podcast, Karen Mm -hmm. Atia, the digital opinions editor at the Washington Post, had this really moving video about um, her experience in Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C., watching as some people were finally able to emerge after hours and hours of questioning and, and being detained. And she talked about her own immigrant background, her mother being a refugee out of um, a war in Nigeria and her father being an immigrant from Ghana. I think that there are many of us, again, even if we're not personally affected by the ban, I think that we can still imagine ourselves connected to what's happening right now. And ultimately, I think it pays to look at this through the lens of history. That's what Lamini Zuma does. She is the African Union Commission's chairperson, and she condemned Trump's order, open quote, the very country to which many of our people were taken as slaves during the transatlantic slave trade has now decided to ban refugees from some of our countries. That's some pretty good uh, shade she's throwing. It's That's like amazing shade. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you, she's right. Yeah. In preparation for my chat with TJ Talley this week, I actually listened to an episode of the BBC Radio 4 podcast, Seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode is called out in Africa, and in the radio documentary, BBC journalist Zach Adesina, who's himself a filmmaker um, and a gay man with Nigerian roots, he explores what it means to be gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender in Africa. And it's, you know, the podcast is about 36 minutes long, but it was really compelling the whole way through. So I highly recommend it to our listeners. Check out our website, ufahamagafrica.com, on Monday morning when we'll post links to these pieces we've mentioned, as well as bonus links to things that we found interesting. In commemoration of Black History Month, this week on Ufahamu Africa, I got to chat with one of my favorite historians, Dr. T.J. Talley. So, as you know, this is Black History Month, and I wonder if there's anything you're reading or that you've read recently that you'd recommend to our listeners. I have one African novel and one African-American novel that I've been reading these past few weeks. So I just finished The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, which I love. 
it takes this sort of conceit, right? What if the Underground Railroad was a real railroad underground? Uh-huh. Uh, but it's really about constant relationships between historic white supremacy and anti-blackness. And it travels through a South that looks like ours and an America that looks like ours, but is never quite actually ours. As a historian, it makes me nuts. It's slightly ahistoric. You can never tell if it's like the 1820s or the 1840s or the 1860s. Uh-huh. And I love that because it throws me off. It's about questions of race. What does it mean to found a country upon this sort of enslavement. And so I find that awesome and also deeply sort of off-putting. And if you're a historian or historically minded, it's a wonderful sort of like dizzying sensation of being completely out of your element, which is one of the things I really enjoyed. What was the African novel? So about three quarters of the way through it and it's Homegoing by Yag Yasi. <gasps> I love that book and I cannot okay. wait to talk to you when you're done reading it. Oh my it. God. I, people just told me that it was good. And right. so I got it on Kindle and I started reading it. It's like, let me, let me, let me take a break. And three and a half hours later, <laughs> as I was halfway through the book, no, I'm like sitting at this coffee shop with my hand over my mouth the whole time, just being like, Oh, oh, oh. Right. right. So for listeners who haven't read Homegoing or haven't heard about it, it's a, a narrative of parallel stories of two women, um, sisters, both that start off in Ghana, right? But then one becomes a slave and is taken yeah. to the United States. It follows the generations, their lineages. And it's really an interesting, powerful tale about blackness slavery. It's really powerful. One of the things I loved about it is that it's messy in a way that we don't usually think about. So you have mixed race characters, you have queer characters, you have characters that are going back and forth between Britain and, you know, Ashanti culture before what we think of as the colonial period. It breaks the rules. And I was just like you when I was reading it. There were nights where I just didn't go to sleep until really late. A book is so good that you're mad at it. That's how I feel right Right. Yes. I keep telling everyone that they have to read it because I, I want to talk to them about it. What did you think about this? And what did you think about that? How do you oh think it God. matters for contemporary society? Because I think that there's a lot of things it can tell us about society today. Mm-hmm. So can you tell our listeners about your research? So I work on 19th century colonial South Africa. I work specifically on a colony called Natal. Mm-hmm. So Natal was on the southeastern corner of the African continent, right on the Indian Ocean. I work in the period roughly from about 1843 when it becomes part of the British Empire and until 1910 when it joins the Union of South Africa right after the Boer War. I look at this specific sort of place on almost the edge of empire, right? It's an attemptive settler colonial state. You have hallmarks of imagined European settlement and yet they're surrounded by more numerous and incredibly resilient indigenous African population who will become in time multiple different types of people known collectively sort of as Zulu people and Indian migrants, sort of South Asian migrant labor starting in the 1860s. Imagined white Southern colonialism at a place where it's demographically outnumbered at least eight to one by indigenous Africans and South Asian migrants that, that equal the number of Europeans. And also, so the work that I do specifically is I have an eye towards thinking about structures of 19th century settler colonialism mm-hmm. and questions of how people make claims to belonging in a highly contested space. And one way that I do that is I've been sort of shaped by not only my time working and living in South Africa and working both in English and Isisulu, but also theoretically based by Uh, critical indigenous studies, but also queer theory. So I do sort of critical theoretical reads, which sounds really important. the ideas of gender and race mm-hmm. and how they get called on by different people to make claims to belong in a space where everybody is jostling to sort of say, no, this is mine. So I'm curious, I didn't know that you were studying laws around marriage. 
So settlers and missionaries are all really invested in non-polygamous marriages as a way of being the proper form of social reproduction. So settlers themselves can't be polygamous. And so looking at African polygamy as a direct threat. So you look at the ways in which legal marriages get sort of constructed as they must be like this, they can be like this. They take testimony and they, they claim indigenous knowledge and then they codify law. And so you have native marriage or customary law, right? And then you have colonial civil law. If you want some of the advantages, like sort of individual land tenure or claims to civilizational status, and you're an African, you have to come out of customary law and go under English civil law. You still will not be allowed to drink alcohol or have access to firearms. And very rare cases, you will be allowed to vote, but very, very rarely. But people, if they want to become under civil law, they, they have to only have one marriage, right? And for many Africans, if they want to convert to Christianity, they have to practice monogamous marriage. So you have a lot of these crises over, well, what does it mean for me to be an African Christian? Or what does it mean for me to be an African? And how do I understand conjugality in a colonial state? I've been also deeply influenced and fascinated by other historians in the area. Nafisa Esip Sheik, who's at the University of Johannesburg, she really points out the ways in which reflexively settler marriages have to be impeccable. These African marriages are so bad and so corrupt. So ours better be great, right? And so you have this big problem where husband and wife get married, the wife dies, he's raising the children. He's like, this is so difficult. The wife's sister comes out from England or for somewhere else to help him raise them. Then they fall in love and they can't get married because that's too close a degree of affinity. You can't marry your deceased wife's sister. There's a specter of illegitimate marriages that are being raised in the colonies. And so you see Natal becoming one of these spaces where they're like, we have to regularize and allow these types of white marriages or we're going to look illegitimate in the face of sort of African marriages. You've got to have proper conjugality or it's all going to fall apart. <laughs> I think we often don't think about the ways in which like settler norms are constructed when they problematize African custom. Then they're like, oh my God, now we have to not mess it up. It's interesting uh, that they cared about hypocrisy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would not have guessed. Were there laws about same-sex relationships hmm. in this period? In the debates in the 1880s, 1890s, so as the, as the century goes on, you see adding to a bill that would be for the protection of women and children, you have the insertion of very similar languages happening across the British Empire, which is the criminalization of homosexuality. It can be seen as a defense to either encourage or allow unnatural male relations. And so this gets added in sort of last minute in debate over protecting, you know, the honor and the chastity of young women and families. And we don't see that many cases sort of same-sex behavior that get detailed. There's things that could be seen as, as sort of queer activities that are not really actually addressed outright. And then you have sort of rare cases of soldiers or other people being discharged or imprisoned for sodomy. Again, really rare, but you do see sort of edges of it. And I think it's really fascinating because in this period, not talking about something for all of us who've ever had to go through Foucault, right? Not talking about <laughs> it's a huge way of how we sort of recognize the contours of, you know, what is allowable or not allowable in society. So I see it, but it's frustrating, right? The glimpses are rare. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It might be in a different context. It's not noticeable. One thing I look at is, well, then how does heteronormativity operate? How do these assumptions over what becomes proper normative behavior. How does that work? And then how does that play out along ideas of race? Right. So, for example, like how might polygamy um, or properly polygyny for Africans be deemed by British observers as fundamentally non-normative and ironically as too heterosexual? How can a particular normative practice for Africans be rendered unacceptable? But also looking at sort of then how do people structure their sort of social relations in response to this. So that I find to be useful, but I've also found that I've got to be real careful. <laughs> like, right. I can't just that 
that sassy, self-important, you know, Western scholar that that flies out to Southern Africa and then stamps everything. I mean, that's <laughs> extraordinarily colonial itself, right? Your formations are queer. And so thinking about how do I understand how these sort of sexual and social formations are contingent? And so I try to be really careful and not just sort of pull up my smart glasses and say, I know what all of you are. That's fascinating. Do you see a performance of you know, this kind of hyper masculinity then in in culture, like in response to these colonial edicts about um, polygyny? I think that there are legacies of it. One legacy is being constantly told that you are aberrant and wrong and having that mapped civilizationally, right? So having British observers saying you're backward and wrong can easily play out in a contemporary way as shoring up normative masculinity. Saying like, no, not only am I not dirty or wrong or backward, this is natural and this is the natural order. Thinking about queerness and polygamy, I thought a lot about the 2010 visit of Jacob Zuma to the UK. It was the state visit back to the colonial past. Hour. Right. And the British press was all about how many wives is Zuma going to bring? Is he going to try to marry the queen? And there was all of this sort of rhetoric about how he's this, you know, backwards sexist bigot. And we can we can make many, many thoughtful, important critiques of much of the heteronormativity and many of the things that Jacob Zuma has done. But it also so easily played into all of these colonial assumptions about African masculinity. And Zuma called it out, right? He was like, this is colonial, you know, propaganda. This is sort of like, you've been always treating us like this. He wasn't wrong. This is the same man who was making sorts of heightened claims, though, about like hyper, you know, masculine normativity, where he would say things like when he was being tried for rape he was like no i don't need to rape you know i'm a proper man i would i would never you know i i'm the right kind of man this wouldn't be a problem for me so you have really problematic statements but ones that are also being made in a sort of colonial like historic context i find that fascinating how you can make these recourses to to hypernormative behavior when you're being queered Right. You know, certain political leaders make these denigrating comments about same-sex desire and same-sex relationships. What's interesting is how many of them point to it being a Western import, right? And that's that's this way of kind of rejecting that colonial past and and the continued like neocolonial presence of people who are calling for greater rights in the international community for sexual minorities in Africa, right? So like the British and the U.S. Well, the U.S. under the previous administration. It makes me think about, for example, intimate partner violence. Um, And, you know, I'm curious, was there anything that you found um, in your research about, you know, laws or rhetorics around um, intimate partner violence? The idea that we need to protect you know, brown women from brown men, mm-hmm. right? And that's where white people step in, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that Zulu masculinity, I mean, as, as it's being constructed by settlers, um, through polygamy, right, is a sort of debased sort of social function, which shows that their treatment of women is backward, which means that the colonial state must step in. There are moments of violence, and they are not to be denied, they're not to be sort of excused, There are also ways in which violences take place in a context that is then explained in hierarchies of colonial power to sort of justify other people's claims to control. And I think about this going back to your previous statement too about contemporary African politicians making rampantly homophobic claims, right? Is homosexuality un-African? If I'm asked that question, first off, my answer would be yes and no. 
people throughout time that have had attractions to people of the same gender, which we could also problematize, but for the sake of argument, sure. Then yeah, that can be a phenomenon that has happened to people in different locations throughout time, although it's definitely contextual and mediated in different ways. But the term, the organizing term and the way that we understand it of homosexuality and the concepts that come with it is a 19th and 20th century Western invention. And that doesn't mean that like if you are an, an African person and you're in and you're attracted to people of the same gender or, or you identify as queer like that that doesn't mean that you're not being african but it does mean that some of the terminology that has been used comes from outside of the continent and then is adapted understood translated and made sense of in, in this context we need to put pressure on what we mean by that term because i think otherwise we get to the sort of like easy universal liberalism so back when hillary clinton was the secretary of state and she was like you know lgbt rights are human rights and i was like okay yes like as a as a queer person i'm like sweet I do love me some human rights. Yes. Right? But at the same time, what does it mean when you're from, you know, a powerful Western country and you're making claims to universal human rights against other people? If you have colonial histories of Europeans coming in and telling Africans that they're backward and wrong and need to fix their lives, this conversation isn't happening in a vacuum. Right. right. And so, yeah, so we can't just pretend like, well, but we need to focus on this issue. And I'm like, but they're, they're not separate. They operate simultaneously. So I also teach on um, sexuality and politics in Africa. And, you know, just a year ago, there was a remix of um, the song by Macklemore, Same Love, by um, yeah. by Art Attack in Kenya. Um, it's this really, you know, powerful video that's talking about same-sex love in Kenya and, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, using actors from, from Kenya. And it's, you know, it's really beautifully shot and also tragic and it demonstrates this potential that arts and culture can have in the movement for improving rights for sexual minorities in Africa and not from this kind of western imposed juncture it's it's something that's that's coming from from folks themselves when I talk to my students about sort of African Christianity it's a space where you can have the reproduction of colonial norms for sure or forms of sort of oppressed institutions of masculinity or identity but you can also have ways in which Africans reestablish and reassert who they are right this religion means something to me but I'm also going to push it back at you right you know what they call the, the Ethiopian church movements in the early 20th century where Africans were like we're not being allowed spaces within our own churches to rise in the hierarchy and we we have equal access to spirituality and the divine and knowing who we are Lauren Jarvis uh, in North Carolina does a really fantastic work about the Shembe Church. This is a Zulu sort of nationalist or cultural church that um, also says like, you know, we're Christian and this is who we are, but we also incorporate traditional Mm -hmm. elements of our own culture and we also push back. I find that really cool. Been able to observe um, services in this church and to see the sort of melding of different traditions and these traditions being claimed as, as sort of this is who we are and this is our identity. One of the things I try and emphasize to my students is how dynamic African peoples are because I think that so often for us in the West, our own sense of being dynamic, our own sense of being current and being modern is often literally done at the expense of Africans without thinking. We assign Africans as unchanging, you know, pre-modern and we're the ones that are dynamic. (laughs) And I'm like, y'all think some people aren't on Facebook? You think that some people aren't actually, you know, using memes or sampling tracks or... (laughs) you know, black Twitter isn't doing its own thing in South Africa. Like there, right. there's that pushback and people are, are as dynamic and as real as you. I teach an African feminisms class. And one of the first words we learned was solipsism, right? The idea that we're the only real thing. 
<laughs> and everything else is sort of like background. My students are like, that's messed up. And I was like, think about it in your own life. And they're like, oh no. We can't just think that to be gay is to be gay is to be gay. The word has, has changed and it's dynamic. Well, thank you so much, TJ, for sharing um, your research and your ideas and uh, with us this week. It's really, I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will too. <laughs> Always great chatting with you, Kim. That's all for this week. Share your thoughts and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent at ufahamuafrica.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Sarah Agatoni, Smith College Class of 2017, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. We leave you this week with music by Zaza Kabayadondo. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Zafiri Salama. Mm-hmm.